my name is Olivia and I'm the co-founder and CEO of Panera. To me, Femtech is the opportunity to develop technology that helps people in over half of the world who have been left behind in the technological innovations of the last few decades. And Femtech addresses these social disparities whilst disrupting and innovating in this huge market. Welcome to Femtech Focus with Dr. Brittany Barreto, exploring the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. Welcome to the Femtech Focus podcast, where we have meaningful and provocative conversations with femtech experts. These academics, doctors, and innovators tell us about the past, present, and future of women's health and wellness. I'm your host, Dr. Brittany Barreto, and today's episode is sponsored by Witham. Witham is a forward-thinking, technology-driven advisory and accounting firm committed to helping companies be more profitable, efficient, and productive in today's complex business environment. Witham's dedicated femtech team is proud to partner with members of the Femtech community. Get to know their team at witham.com backslash Femtech. Today's episode features my interview with Dr. Olivia Ahn, CEO and co-founder of Planera. Planera is launching the market's first certified, flushable, and completely biodegradable sanitary pads. Olivia founded Planera as a result of mounting frustration with companies forcing the burden of waste onto us as individuals. She believes that a well-designed product should be intuitively simple to use and to dispose in a sustainable manner. Here, the flushable and biodegradable sanitary pads were born and three years of research and development later, Planera has launched the world's first and only certified flushable and 100% biodegradable sanitary pad. Planera's pads have a similar impact to toilet paper and give back the guilt-free choice and freedom to the consumer. Enjoy the episode. Hey Liv, welcome to the show. Hi, Brittany. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, I'm very excited to have you on the show. We met recently on a panel, Women of Wearables. I got yes. to know you there. It was very, very fun to do that. It was really enjoyable being on the panel with you. It was a great, it was, you moderated it really beautifully, took us smooth sailing from topic to topic. Um, and yeah, I think there was another uh, panel afterwards as well. Um, yeah, there's two panels I moderate. There's a couple of panels, yeah, in the last <laughs> of Christmas period. So yeah, it's exciting to sit down and tap through some things like one-on-one. It's exciting. Yes, absolutely. Um, well, let's kick it off with your background. Our listeners love to learn where our guests are from, what did they study, and then how did they end up here? Sure. Uh, so currently, I'm living in London in the UK, um, where I got to this point in the journey. So I started off uh, going to medical school in London. Um, I uh, It's not too far from where I am in Hammersmith. And yeah, six years I studied, I was pretty much all set on going into surgery. And pretty much in my fifth year, when I was living with, who now became my co-founder, we ended up just starting a discussion around periods and sustainability, um, essentially because I was 
either constantly on or never having my period because I was at that point yet undiagnosed with polycystic ovarian syndrome. So it was all a bit of a confusing time. And then um, we just sort of naturally uh, sort of started the company when we realized there was this demand for a, you know, a sustainable and to be honest, just a better sanitary product that is currently available on the mass market. Um, and then worked in the NHS for a couple of years and then went and quit full time to go into this uh, just over a year ago uh, in September 2019, uh, which brought me here. So it's been a bit of dabbling from what I thought was going to be into medicine to entrepreneurship. It took me a, quite a long time, actually, to accept that I was an entrepreneur as a label. Um, yeah. I don't think I really understood what that meant. Um, and I felt like, you know, you needed a lot of ownership and proof of what being an entrepreneur meant. And I, at that point, I just had an idea. Mm -hmm. I was just entering into competitions and trying to get funding for it. So it was, it's been an interesting journey. I actually really would love to talk about that a little bit more because when I first started my first company in grad school, you know, mm -hmm. I was so insecure that I was mm -hmm. the founder, that I was going to be the CEO. I was like, I'm just some scientist. Like, I don't know how to do any of this. And I, it was, and I look back at that. I'm like, oh, little Brit, like you were absolutely <laughs> the founder, you know, and actually just mentored a, a woman today who was like, I'm obsessed with, you know, revolutionizing breastfeeding, but I don't have an MBA. I don't know if it's, and I said, girl, it is you. It is you, you are the woman. So let me ask you, what was your impression of what an entrepreneur was before? And what is, what do you think an entrepreneur is now? Ooh, that's a great question. I think my, my understanding of what it meant to be an entrepreneur before I sort of set up the business was someone who had a plan and stuck to the plan of <laughs> where I'm going to go. And then for the first couple of years, I was making plans that I was forever changing and, you know, adapting. And everyone was like, oh, this is pivoting. This is you being adaptable and flexible, all these buzzwords. And I was like, are you sure? I just don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and then now when I think about it, I think it's someone who has a vision and has an end goal and is trying to figure out things backwards to get there. Um, whether it's trying to fit out funding or trying to get policy change or consumer behavior, whatever that movement is to get to that point. And someone, I think the vision is the most important part. Um, whereas before I thought it was the action, whereas off, well, <laughs> for me, it took me a while of R&D and trial and fitting of what is our insight and what is the core problem that we're solving. That took a, a, a while, but I, I think we found it now. That is probably the best definition I've ever heard of what an entrepreneur is. And honestly, even with all my confidence that this is exactly where I should be, you just made me feel better. Because I, oh. I didn't have that tech focus. Uh, people are like, you know, wow, I love what you built. And I'm like, what did I build? I feel like I'm still figuring it out, you know? <laughs> oh, well, that's yeah because yeah I think the vision and the the thing that I love about entrepreneurship is that when you get like-minded sort of mission-driven founders or team members or whoever within this field you get sort of something that's so much greater than a sum of its parts because yeah. you know, sort of angle and support and oh this person and what about this way and what about this you know entry to market and it's it's really exciting and there's this adrenaline that I sort of get off of it because it's really like, oh, you know, you know, I mean, I, you know, I'm a small part of it, but I could really make a big impact. 
Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so awesome. So awesome. Um, (laughs) So what is your company, Miss Entrepreneur, Dr. Entrepreneur? What is is Planera? (laughs) So Planera is a personal hygiene company. And we were essentially founded because we believe that disposable consumable products have not been designed for disposal. And so our first product that we've designed is a 100% certified flushable and biodegradable sanitary pad. And the reason why we chose this is because the sort of current routes of disposal that are available for consuming, you've got the bin where it ends up in landfill or going to incinerators, or, you know, 30% end up in waterways causing blockages and microplastics. So even if we made a pad that was 100% biodegradable, you know, really sustainable, there is no route for it to be sustainably disposed. And so it makes sense to me that, you know, we have existing sewage infrastructure. Why don't we use this toilet, the toilets, like we flush away our toilet paper and other sort of hygiene waste that we have um, and make it something that is convenient and uh, sustainable. Mm -hmm. Um, Is toilet paper made to disintegrate purposefully? Yes. Yeah, Yes. it is. Yes, it is. Yeah, I know. I I keep thinking about like in restaurants and you see the sign and it says like, please put your pad in, like put your feminine care products in the bin. It'll hurt our pipes, our sewage and all that stuff. Right. Cause I don't know. I personally, maybe this is a weird statistic. I don't know if anyone's going to have it, it's you. <laughs> but like when I see those signs in restaurants, I'm always like, who's flushing their pad? Like, especially when the trash thing is here. Now, admittedly, I haven't had my period in many years. I'm on a certain birth control. I don't have to have it. But, um, you know, when I did and I had pads or two, I was like, who's flushing this stuff? Like the trash is right there. Do you know the statistics of like, yeah, it's shocking. It's shocking. So in the UK, a third of all sanitary products end up in our waterways. So one in three. And then in 2019, I don't don't know what the latest, because the latest report was published by The Guardian in 2019. They said one in two women in the UK have flush sanitary products, whether it's tampons or pads. And typically the higher percentage is dependent on, you know, different places, but you get different ranges of pads and tampons being flushed according to sort of different geographies as well. But it is something that for me, at the very beginning, I have to put my hands up and say, for the first couple of years when I was unaware and ignorant, I thought tampons were flushable because to me, I thought they were designed that way. Yeah. And then I realized they weren't. But I never thought that, you know, I could flush sanitary pads, but, you know, they seemed a bit bulky, but that's something that, you know, apparently people do as well. Huh. Um, and so we thought, you know, if a third of people, a third of products are going down the, the toilet and one in two people had, had done it, then why not create products that, seem clearly it's natural and intuitive for people. <laughs> yeah, so why not create a product that does do it and this they want to do it yeah 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 um yeah. wow and so what are the consequences of flushing your pads um so the first thing is immediately so you you stop the product from going into landfill and um, currently all sanitary products contain some type of plastic so it's mainly in three areas within the sanitary product so it's the uh, petroleum-based adhesive, so the sticky part that sticks to the pants. Uh, you've got the plastic backing sheet that stops the leaking. And you've got the superabsorbent polymer gel that sort of forms, uh, sort of uh, solidifies the blood almost, that, let's say, and keeps it in the middle. 
Um, currently, even if you have an organic product, is that just means that the top sheet is replaced with cotton and the rest of the plastic is still there. Oh. Which, you know, still takes, whether it is biodegradable, currently they'll take about 500 years to degrade away, which is oh my exactly God. the current climate. So with our pads, as soon as they're flushed, essentially you get the two-stage breakdown. So you get a hydraulic ripping apart by the toilet, by the hydraulic action of the water of the toilet flush that okay. rips all the layers apart. Then all the layers will start to disintegrate into three millimeter wide cellulose fibers, which is fibers made from plants. And then the secondary sort of disintegration and decomposition happens at the water plant. So along with your human sewage and toilet paper, it'll go and decompose and biodegrade away. So the impact is similar to toilet paper, essentially. We use, you know, most of our product is made from cellulose. It'll just degrade away. Um, so it prevents that sort of impact of plastic going into water and going into landfill. Wow. And why hasn't anyone done this before? I've been thinking, no, that's a question that I sort of tackled myself <laughs> for a couple of years. And I've come up with sort of two factors that played into it. One is we've been very fortunate with our timing within material technology development. Mm. Um, there certain things just haven't been able to happen because these types of conversions within your non-wovens and within different kinds of polymers have taken so long to develop. So, you know, in 1980s, when the wings, you know, were added onto it, that was the most that they could do with the current material technology available. So there's that sort of advancement allowing for flushable and non-toxic products. And I think the second thing is really a change within consumer behavior. Um, right now, I, there was a statistic that was like 66% of global consumers are, you know, willing to pay a premium for a more sustainable product, something that takes that guilt and responsibility away from them. So because there's this, you know, consumer drive, essentially, there's money in it now for consumers, for companies. I think more and more sort of suppliers and manufacturers within these sort of non-woven space have developed, you know, things that allow and processes that help us to get there. So those sort of market drivers and the you know, the technology sort of married together very fortunately in the last couple of years. So it's a, you know, a new wave of mindfulness for the environment. It's material engineering. And then it's like badass women like yourself that are like, well, um, hello, <laughs> this is the updated. Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that really shocked me though, really. I think the state of the products on the market was, you know, an incentive, but, you know, they've always been there. But the piece of knowledge that really got me going and really lit a fire under me is when I realized that in the UK, at least, over 50% of all products sold is under one brand. And so then I was like, what? There's, there's no driver for innovation or challenge to this. <laughs> like monopoly. It's not a, quite a monopoly, but someone who's just, you know, straddling such a wide sector of the market there. And um, so, of course, we're not going to see emergence of new products yeah. or brands or things that are going to be pushing it because there's, you know, they're, they're very happy and they've got, they've got a very large share of the market. So then I was like, you know, we need to chip away at that. Yeah. And what what is that brand? It's always. Always. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and we, we do have male listeners. We have lots of different listeners. And so I do want to just kind of explain because sometimes people, we don't talk about this enough, right? So they may not even know that the uh, pad actually has on the bottom a sticky adhesive and women will stick it into the bottom of their panties so it doesn't, it doesn't move around. So just FYI, if you didn't know that. So you take the pad out, it's usually in packaging and then you have to peel off the back like, um, like a sticker, right? You gotta peel mm. off it and then it's sticky. So what I wanna ask you about is, um, 
are those pieces compostable too? Tell yeah, me about so that. So those are water disposable and they are also fully biodegradable. So we've converted and made a similar, um, we've got a sort of a barrier that we've created that works like a one-way street within our pad that essentially absorbs and blocks any fluid that goes down. Mm-hmm. But as soon as fluid goes up from underneath the pad, the pad will sort of disintegrate because... Whoa! <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah, if water can disintegrate it. That's not necessarily a great pad. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. yeah. So we've got so for incontinence as well, and that's what I was. I was was actually going to ask you about that, Brittany, when you mentioned your male listeners, because I don't know what sort of demographic, whether they're sort of older or younger listeners who within the male uh, listeners there. But um, one in the UK, one in ten men over the age of sixty-five wear wear products for incontinence, for post surgery, for whatever. Um, But one in three men that rises to one in three men over the age of eighty who wear products as well. So then I was. I was shocked because uh, the, we've got men on our production team who all have worn sanitary products uh, in order to understand what it's like. But they they were so unaware that the male population, the older that they got, if there was issues with that, then they would have to wear pads. And it would be exactly the same products, but the, so obviously the branding is hyper-masculine, you know, completely black, sort of, it's the same, you know, those uh, adverts that you get, which is hyper-masculinizing, yeah. sort of. Uh, a product that is generally considered taboo. So it's been interesting delving into that. Um, Does the man's pad also have the stickiness to it and it sticks inside their briefs? Yes, there's different shapes. So for hemorrhoid pads, they're completely circular to go in the bad of, for the for the bottom, for the boxes. Yep. And then you've got sort of wider, sort of thinner, the ones that sort of look like the thong-shaped uh, pads that you get for women. Yeah. Uh, in order to sort of accommodate the male briefs, you've got that those different shaped pads as well They've got wow. like as well yeah it's been interesting. really interesting so are you going to make products for them too because i mean <clears throat> i, I yeah, that's, feel like that's... you're empowering women but i also feel like you're empowering mother earth yeah and right? yeah definitely because you know all these men who you know wear pads they don't have sanitary bins in their toilets so my question is what oh. are they doing with them now i don't Do we know no, they don't have because it's sanitary bins, and so it's it's in women's toilets. Do you um, but, do men get little signs that say throw like don't? I've not. I mean, <laughs> I've never been in a male oh toilet to ask around. <laughs> the men causing all the clogs <laughs> with their incontinence pads. These are yeah. these are important questions. <laughs> yeah, these are important questions. There was a, I was going through Reddit. Um, to understand about, you know, people who struggled with incontinence and the subreddits where people discuss about men who wear pads and the issues that they come up is when they go to public, well, pre-COVID times, uh, when yeah, they went yeah. to public toilets and then they'd be putting on and pulling off a pad and the person next to them would be like, are you eating crisps or? What yeah, what was that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, so that's really interesting. This whole other aspect of people wearing pads who are not, doing it for menstruation that I just really found myself learning more about. Well, at Femtech Focus, we love all genders, uh, (laughs) all sexes. And uh, I always say, you know, we are feminists, but we're not angry ones. We're not like angry at men or males, right? Um, In fact, we think like we all just are in this together. And there's certain things about, um, you know, women have certain privileges too that men don't. And so like, to think about being a man who's struggling with incontinence and they don't have bins because that's just like men would never have any issue in their underwear 
is actually quite discriminatory and embarrassing and shameful yeah. as well. Like what, if, what if they, you know, they have, you said yeah. hemorrhoid pads. Jesus, I mean, if you've ever had hemorrhoids so bad, you need to wear a pad. Can you imagine needing to like put it in your pocket and then throw it in a garbage outside the stall because yeah. one or not many men carry handbags either. So no. uh-huh. so then I stuffing their pockets or maybe they flush it or maybe they put it into the bin outside or the communal. I, I, I sort of, yeah, <laughs> I know, it's, 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 they throw it out. I don't know. Okay, <laughs> through the window. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so this, uh, that's, yeah, I really, yeah. well, it sounds obviously that obviously I'm a convert, but I think, you know, flushing it solves the issue. Yeah. Yeah. But so, yeah, this is something that I've come to learn and definitely something that we need to sort of talk about and address. Definitely. And so, and I have, so I, I asked you about the pad, like the wrapper and the little sticky like thing. What about tampon? So first let me ask is the tampon itself. So let's say use tampon. I, it kind of looks like cotton and there's, I don't think there's any plastic in that. And I, I actually, now I'm thinking about it. I think I may have, I may flush have, have flushed tampons in my life when I used to have my period. So is that okay? Or is that also like no. in the world? Yeah. So no, no tampons on the market are flushable. Um, so, yeah. None of them, none of them because of the, I think there's two sorts of issues there. So one is the sort of, the, the sort of physical blockages because the tampon will just grow and grow and grow. <laughs> yeah, it's like a term. <laughs> and if you're in a small, if you're in a small tube, then that's gonna block that right up. And also the the sort of chemicals that are part of it as it starts to break down. I don't know if the water systems have been developed to sort of handle those sort of chemicals that have gone in because obviously they have not been tested if they're compatible with that. So I think those are the sort of two main issues. Um, so yes, with the after pads, that tampons is something that we are sort of looking at. I think there's going to be two sort of obstacles to it. So one is the behavior that people generally tend to have when they wear a tampon. For me, at least, it opens up the, the possibility of water-based activities like going swimming or doing yeah. a bath. So I think if, if there's a water flushable, if there's a flushable pad, I think we need to be, I mean, a flushable tampon, there's a sort of danger there of sort of behavior affecting the performance there. And then the second thing is the sort of structure of it right now, because our, all of our sort of material technology is non-wovens, which in itself is very strong when uh, laminated and welded together, like the way that we do for our pads. But around a tampon, it has to sort of expand by itself very spherically around a singular point in the center. Yeah. So that means it has to have a, it has to be able to hold itself structurally for intention, which I think will need some more material development in that sort of process. It's a sort of different. Uh, process development so there's sort of two angles for us um for other future sort of product ranges that we're looking at we want to work with our community to understand what which ones are sort of priorities so whether it is looking at sort of personal hygiene like incontinence or if it's like wet wipes or tissues or whether we look at infant care like diapers or any other sorts of sort of more sensitive body parts as well or thinking at like household hygiene everyday essential things that don't necessarily have to be flushable, but because if they are water dispersible by the nature of it, they are so much more easily biodegradable. Yeah. So they don't need to be sent to an industrial compost. You don't need to, you know, think of an easy, you, you could send them to the bin and any contact with moisture will make it start to biodegrade. So the nature of sort of everyday disposable items um, and sort of making those convenient and disposable um, sort of our next portfolio. So I create a, about one bag of trash a week 
as a single woman. My mother and sister visited this weekend with uh, my sister's brand new baby, my little nephew. They visited for three days and I went through two and a half bags of trash. <laughs> I was like, this a lot of weight. And I mean, I didn't even think about it until right now as you're talking about diapers. I'm yeah. like, hey, yeah, yeah, I took the trash out twice this weekend. It's like unheard of. Yeah, first of all, congratulations. That's very exciting. Uh, But second of all, yeah, there's a lot of ventures in that. Yeah, there was (laughs) a a child myself, but the diapers themselves, there was like other little napkins and just all the the tissue, all the things for the baby, because all the orifices are just all over them, you know. Leaking. (laughs) Yeah, they're just all leaking and uh and like thank God the diapers are are as absorbent and thick as they are because that little newborn has some weird poops, right? Like that's what they do. Uh and you're very small but mighty. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, that's so interesting to think about. You think, um, so I can see the issue with tampons being a 360 approach. So your, your design, you know, so for any listeners, we have material engineers, industrial designers, yeah, we, need you, we need you, <laughs> um, but maybe diapers could be another product yeah, that definitely. you guys could more easily do, huh? Yeah. Interesting. Definitely. Interesting. Does this, um, is this the like privileged product? Like, are these going to be like more expensive than regular products so therefore it's just like affluent women can enjoy the you know the the pleasure of being kind of the earth or are you doing this with some kind of like um accessibility in terms as well sure that's yeah definitely so at the beginning we have two sort of limitations to our product uh to make it as cheap as we can so first of all is just the the expensiveness of the materials that we're using compared to the typical materials that are used on the market. So that already sort of brings up the initial sort of pricing point that we are looking at. Um, And the second point is around the sort of manufacturing process itself. So the current manufacturing process uses thermoplastic in between the layers, but we stripped out all the consumables and redesigned a new, completely non-consumable process that essentially uses friction to weld these layers together. Um, all of these things at the very beginning make it expensive for us to do because we have to design these products, we have to design these new sort of bespoke machines. So at the start, our pricing point is some is between sort of uh, current uh, plastic products, uh, like the sort of legacy products, and the D2C organic products that you get. Mm-hmm. So our pads are currently around 40p uh, to around 50p per pad, depending on the size of box that you get. Uh, the pads that you get in the supermarket such as your Always or a Kotex or whatever, will range anywhere from sort of 11p to 30p. And then you've got the organic products that are delivered to your door. So in the UK, they range anywhere from about 40p to 75p. So we're sort of in the middle of those two things. So that automatically puts us in a higher bracket. Um, however, sort of our long-term plan, with the abolishment of the tampon tax here in the UK, that can hopefully help us with the margins to keep it as low as possible. The second thing is that as we hit magnitude of scale, mm-hmm. as we may start making over 600 pads per minute, and as we start getting minimum order quantities, we'll be able to drop the prices even lower. So right now, as you know, we literally launched like a couple of months ago, we're at this sort of difficult point where we have to make sure that you know we're able to survive. Our plan is to drop it for the future. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Sort of, the sort, oh, sorry. 
No, go ahead, go ahead. Uh, my sort of second musing was around the nature of the products itself, because a flushable product, I think, is, uh, can only be accessible to a certain privileged countries that have the infrastructure of yeah. flushability. Yeah. Even in cases, for example, I think even in Asia, where my parents are originally from South Korea, and because of the nature of the high-rise buildings where you get like sort of 20, 30 floor buildings, you can't even flush toilet paper. So for there, we would offer the same product because the benefits are still the same. You will still put them in the bin, but you won't have to, you know, put them, they won't be, you, they won't have to, you get stuck in the landfill for 500 years. They can biodegrade with moisture. Yeah. Um, so there'll be sort of different aspects to um, the product itself. Uh-huh. But definitely the, the usage of flushability by nature has to have an infrastructure that allows for it. So yeah, mm-hmm. really that point. And so let's say um, uh, a woman is in a country where she doesn't have a flushing toilet. It's more of a like kind of outhouse mm. type of deal. Um, is If she drops the pad into that, will it <laughs> degrade though? Or does it really need that like flush, like that tearing, you know, motion? It'll take longer if there's no hydraulic action. Um, so it will take longer physically to break down. Um, so yeah, but it will biodegrade. Um, yeah. Even if you put it into the ground and the groundwater, the rain and all that kind of stuff, that, that will help to biodegrade it away. Um, because even after use, there will be humidity within the pad. That's it's just about making sure the speed of it. Um, yeah. Um, I have a question I've actually always been curious about. So if I throw something into my plastic trash bag that is supposedly you know degrades faster but because I put it in my plastic trash bag does the plastic trash bag protect it from degrading like yeah I think it very much depends because it depends on the definition of this gets this is where it (laughs) sort of gets really confused because the definition of biodegradation changes from company to products and sort of different things because the 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 sort of conditions around it whether it's sort of industrial type of decomposition when you need certain high temperatures and a certain ratio of anaerobic and aerobic bacteria that will affect the rate of decomposition and so depending on the material of the product you put inside the plastic bag depending on even if the plastic bag itself is biodegradable but through what type um it, it it's so dependent so that's that's something that i'm really i I need to, that's why I'm trying to focus on one issue as an entrepreneur. I need to, I focus is, you know, sustainable disposable products, but I'm really, I'm, it really annoys me that there are labels that it feels to me like an effort to just lazy greenwashing, yeah. especially I think by corporates that are so unsustainable within their infrastructure organization. They are these huge legacy companies that are profitable and that's what they that because that's the era that they were built in to be profitable and you know make huge amounts of market shares and you know eat up the other sort of competitors on the market but this era has shifted i feel yeah. towards being more understanding of the impact on our environment because we know that we're essentially going to burn all of our natural resources away and so these large corporates are trying to buy back their customers Mm-hmm. by showing that this is biodegradable but the definition of biodegradable can differ from this product to that product and so clear labeling and that you know the recycling arrows uh-huh. certain changes of those labels can mean that this product is made from recycled products but is not recyclable oh. or this product can be recycled put me in the recycling bin but 
those two are very different endpoints. <laughs> so one of them I need to put in the bin and one of them I need to put into the recycling. And I need to spend time understanding which of those is which. And if I'm being lazy or tired or I just don't have time, then I won't do it. And then it'll just get sent to the landfill. You know, it reminds me of like <laughs> Tyson chicken when they finally, you know, were exposed for keeping so many chickens in cages. And then, then they said, cage-free eggs. And then eventually another documentary came out was like, this is what cage free is. They just know I have cages, but they all live in a giant hot yeah. warehouse. And I'm they like, just renamed the cage oh, a different God. thing. <laughs> yes. So oh, I'm it's cage so free. Yeah, I guess yeah. so. But like, yeah, labeling is so important. We were actually thinking at Fem Focus, like, how could we create a uh, Femtech certified? you know, like mm-hmm. actually checks these boxes and then it like, uh, like fair market, you know, trade. Yeah. Like be cool or anything. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, if we do that, we're bringing you in for the material <laughs> part of it. <laughs> anything material wise, you're coming in as the expert. Uh, I really want something like a traffic light system. Do you, I, I'm not so familiar with um, how things are sort of uh, sold in, in America, but in the UK, we have a traffic light system on food. Where thing is green, yellow, or red, depending on if there's like a high amount of fats or high amount of salts or sugars in the different sort of snacks. So it's really easy to is to try and like combat obesity in the UK. And it was like a governmental sort of thing to have done. And imagine if we could get something like that. But so there's like an eco tag. So what is the impact of me buying this product? So there's the financial cost of that's going to cost me seven pounds or whatever. But there's like a red product and a green product, and I and I know that if I that extra half a second of looking will make it really easy for me to make the right choice. And so forcing corporates to be better. Yeah. Um, but with Brexit going on, I think the UK government has a lot of other things. <laughs> They're like, we're really <laughs> <laughs> <They're, they're laughs> <something> Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, um, uh, is the, do you have any other statistics for us on, on the impact? If, if, we have any listeners that, uh, you know, probably they're already like, damn, this sounds really important, but I'm sure you have lots of other statistics in terms of like the negative impact on the environment pads and tampons have. Do you have any more stats for us? Yeah, mine are more UK-based just because of okay. uh, where, where my research has taken me. We have <laughs> listeners in 80 countries, so no problem. Awesome, awesome. So yeah, in the UK, which is a pretty small island, 200,000 tons of sanitary waste. So that's almost 17,000 London buses. That's an incredible amount that goes to landfill. I know. And 90% of every sanitary pad is plastic. So then if we think about the tonnage and then expanding it just to Europe itself, every year, like the people use enough sanitary pads in Europe to wrap around the earth 136 times. And it's really shocking. Because then you look at, for example, we haven't taken into account America, Asia, Africa, and then you just, and then my skin starts to sort of shudder, and I get really, I get really, I get really sweaty as I start to think about the sort of plastic that's ending up there. I did not know that my birth control was actually a sustainability move. <laughs> I did not realize how big of an. Imp- I should try to quantify. Why don't you message me later? We'll post it along with this podcast, listeners. Check check it out on our social. But tell me, on average, uh, one woman's 
like ways. Oh yeah, and I've let got me those. calculate how many years I haven't had my period, and I'm gonna make yeah. some kind of meme or post about how much, how many yeah. pounds of land. Oh, that'd be great. We could do that, like a calculate <laughs> on a website or something, and you can type in how old yeah. you are, period, how many years, and then you just know how much. Oh, yeah. oh, this is good. We're coming up <laughs> together right now. All right, what other statistics do you have, if any? Kind of- uh, oh, I think I threw something out there. I was saying that I think I talked about the landfill. So 56% ends up in landfill and 14% goes to incinerators. And so the remaining 30% goes to waterways. With statistics, I always want to double check with all of my with all of my references. So I'll send all of these references to you after the podcast. So you any are one to it. amazing. <laughs> Actually, leads me to my next question, which is, you know, I'm a scientist, PhD, genetics. Um, I'm not even CPR certified. So sometimes people are like, but you're a doctor. And I'm like, not that kind. <laughs> like, you're totally screwed. Um, <laughs> um, we're all screwed. And someone who gets sick. Anyways, uh, you, though, went to medical school. And um, I think PhDs should absolutely start companies. P- like, I also think PhD should start podcasts because people are like, how did you become such a good moderator? And I'm like, oh, because I ask questions. Like that's what scientists do. It's literally what my education's in is asking good questions, listening, and then coming up with another question. And I think entrepreneurship is a big fat PhD project. It's your board meetings or your committee meetings. Your thesis is your business plan. Your, you know, like your collaborators or your co. Yeah. And like you constantly never finished writing your thesis or business. Never finished. Always gone. You have little money, little amount of time, a whole lot of stress. Like there are literally so many similarities between a PhD and an entrepreneur. It's crazy. So I wanted to ask you, as an mm. MD, do you mm. see similarities? Do you think more MDs should start companies? I, yes, uh, I think everyone should be starting companies. I, <laughs> I think that's something that, that, that was my misconception was that I thought I needed, well, um, let me phrase this right. I thought I needed a special teaching qualification or a special pathway in order to do business. And I think there is no one right route to it. I think within medicine and working as a doctor for two years, that I think one thing that I learned from it, which really helps me even to this day, is the perspective it sort of gave me. Because I I'm, I would describe myself very much, I think, as a type A personality. I sort of push myself a lot and that can be, that can end up very negative. And uh, after working within uh, high stress situations, for example, like I find I loved pediatrics, but I found it also very, very stressful if obviously things didn't go well. Um, and the thing that I, the perspective I enjoy is that right now, even though it is really pretty much, it's my baby and it is, yes, it's my life, but there is no life or death situation Yeah. in my day-to-day decisions. So sometimes I take a step back and go, no, two years ago, like, you know, there's no difficult conversation you have to be doing. So that's what I like. That's my personal sort of thing. But the other sort of thing that I have similarities is time management. I think with a doctor, my day is never done. You, you're like, you finish at five, yes, sure, but it's not. It's whenever your job's finished. And I think that's very much the same with an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Your your day isn't, you don't clock out at five. I think, well, I think that's a big generalization there. But a lot of the entrepreneurs that I know tend to take their work home with them yeah. and yeah. very bad at separating work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that sort of time, that sort of their management and prioritization, because I know I'll never be done. 
my job will never be done and my test my uh, list of tasks will never be ticked off however much I try and just learning to be okay with that um, was something that I found really useful. I remember when I started to see people put on social media like TGIF, thank God it's Friday. And I was like, I remember, <laughs> no, just I remember when I used to have a feeling about Friday. Yeah. Like, I do have somewhat of a feeling like I get to sleep in a little bit, but like yeah. I remember the moment when no, I was like, no. <laughs> that phenomenon doesn't exist for me anymore. And then also, I guess the new thing now, I've been an entrepreneur long enough that I didn't even know about this, but it's called the Sunday scaries. Apparently mm-hmm. like Sunday afternoons through the evening, people now get anxious about their week ahead. And so my mm-hmm. friend was like, do you get the Sunday scaries? And I was like, I don't even know what that means because <laughs> yeah. I'm working on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. like, we have the weekend, yeah, the Monday, weekend so. is such a great time because I know I have no meetings, so I can get yes. work done. So I can be like, you know what? I needed to think for three hours. And, you know, just not, I don't need to, I mean, it is work, but it's not like, like I can just have time when no one will bother me. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoy that. Um, yeah. yeah. Actually, I've thought of, I thought of one thing actually that I use almost, um, well, uh, when I did a lot more public speaking um, with, for the company, it, it was a pretend a lot of my job as a medical doctor was pretending to to, to well assuring patients that I knew what I was doing mm-hmm. um when sometimes I may not always know what I'm doing but I'm obviously there to be professional and as a junior doctor I'm there to help um and that's a lot of the position I thought myself in as a founder is assuring investors like oh no I have a plan and obviously you do but there's that lot I wouldn't call it imposter syndrome there's you just know that you have to be better and show more and there's that sort of presentation you have to give off yeah um that's something that I very much and I think a lot of sort of young professionals could sort of relate to that if they get into a sort of senior position earlier on um leading a team when you look young or are well Mm -hmm. I often got called as nurse and not doctor or like being mistaken for a different role or having then having to prove yourself so even in the same thing going into a meeting and sometimes my male co-founder will be spoken to more um, and um, it's it's finding that balance and finding that assertion of knowing and knowing your sort of uh, role within the company and the value, but also being humble and not over-asserting yourself. Oh my gosh. So much of entrepreneurship is a big fat game of chess. And it's <laughs> like crazy, the dynamics. I mean, now I'm operating uh, as an investor and it's so interesting to me um, how, you know, uh, I behave to investors, how I see lots of founders behave to investors, but because I'm uniquely a younger female, like very friendly investor, what I find mm-hmm. is that founders I'm dealing with, like investigating potentially funding for them, they're texting me like we're friends, which I can appreciate, but there's also a point where I'm like, hey, respect the power <laughs> dynamic, bro. Like I'm your investor. Like I would never text my, text my investors this, you know, like if I was older and mailer, you would not be texting me being like, so where's the money? Like, what if you know, like so I, I, this is, a, this is a new one for me. So I'm like starting to learn it and like figuring out. And unfortunately, a lot of times with this, these social dynamics, you got to fall in the hole 
and then look around how did I fall in this and then figure out next time so now I'm like I wonder if I can't be as friendly 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 mm. you know with my potential investee yeah. until maybe I write the check I don't know so I'm like <laughs> learning that but you know at, at Fairmore my last company I had um, an Asian male co-founder and mm. he was 50 percent as important to the company as I was but he was the tech you know back end mm. the tech and you know what? Our investors were always like, oh, Ben's like, so with the company, that's nice. And I'd be like, what the hell are you talking about? And then I learned about the, um, I think it's called like the forgotten Asian or the overlooked Asian, where mm-hmm. people are like, oh, that person, like, oh, yeah. And I was like, he's freaking critical to the mission. Don't be like, oh, that's nice of him to stick around. Like, he's critical. Like, what are you yeah. talking Just because I'm the one who presents, you know? So, yeah. I get, I get on my soapbox about, you know, we talk about female founder issues all day, but there's lots of other ageism and, and the different mm-hmm. races. And it's not just black founders, it's Asian founders. It's all the different things, you know? Yeah, yeah. definitely. I'd love to ask you a question, actually. Oh, let's do it. Yeah, because <laughs> I, because you, you sort of made me think of something that I, I'm sort of uh, coming to terms with and thinking about how to deal with is, I've been asked this question: is what type of CEO do you want to be for your team? Because I think up till now, being a CEO was a label, and now that our team's growing and we're becoming more operational, you know, uh-huh. getting into our boots this role of a CEO seemingly is more and more important. Um, so I'd like to ask you, how did you sort of figure out what kind of CEO you wanted to be? And Oh my God. Sort of test this that is such a good question. I would say uh, through, through trial and error, but also authenticity, because I had a paradigm of what I thought a CEO was, and I didn't mm-hmm. necessarily want to be that. Like, unapproachable has her own office like cold people like work harder when she walks in like I didn't want to be that you know like I wanted I wanted them to invite me to lunch and stuff you know but it was interesting when there was dynamics where it was like they did some like my employees would do something and I wasn't invited and I'd have to be like okay all right yeah or like yeah they don't want the boss there Or like even authentic focus right now. I feel very close to all my 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 team, but I I have heard sometimes they talk to each other about stuff and I'm not included, and I'm like what what? And you know, and uh, Sue Warren, she's so good. She's like, well, you're kind of like the boss. They don't want it, you know. I'm like, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So I don't. Know. I think authenticity and um, but also I I struggle with wanting to be liked, and um, so having to get over that. Sometimes yeah. people, you, being the boss means sometimes you need to say things that are going to make someone not like you and like needing to just like swallow that, you know, and like mm-hmm. stay firm. And then you can walk away and feel sad that like maybe someone doesn't like you. But uh, I, I would say that was probably my biggest challenge growing into being yeah. a CEO. Oh, yeah. I, think I, I think I relate to that because I, I agree that I, I've never been someone's boss before. And up till this I've always been the ju- like the junior um and so even trying to figure because and also everyone in my team is older than me um and that that dynamic is something that's interesting oh, yeah. how did you how how did you sort of testing in a way because to me I you know science I I know how to test and iterate in a lab trial I know how to like and within that process was it through interviews or was it I'm derailing this I'm sorry it's just- <laughs> 
think I will appreciate the little mentoring here, though. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm genuinely really curious because well, this is such a big stage for me, I think, in the next sort of aspect. And, and I think it, it is for a lot of listeners, too, because a lot of listeners are early stage founders. So listen up, y'all. I My biggest piece of advice um, is to trust your gut. And as a medical doctor and as a scientist, we were trained to trust the data and not our guts. And so for uh, first few years of being a leader, I would have a feeling, I don't think this is employee's going to work out. I think this partnership's really critical. I think whatever. And, but I wouldn't vocalize it because I'd be like, based on what? Based on what do I have this feeling? So I wouldn't say it. And sure enough, it always happened. That employee sucked. That partnership <laughs> was exactly what we needed, you know, whatever. Yeah. And I, so then the next phase was like, I'd started to like say it out loud, like, hey, so this is what I think, but like, we don't have to do anything about it, but this is what I think. <laughs> and then it always happened today. As soon as I have a gut feeling, even if I have no data to back it up, I'll like take an action on it. Um, ah, so I think that's like the evolution of like going mm. from a scientist doctor to a CEO uh, is operating from intuition and having mm. having faith in that because I always was like unless I have data like who who am I you know just yeah. based on my stomach and now I'm like oh yeah I don't know what yeah. Mother Nature juju stuff <laughs> on in my stomach but I feel it I feel it I have a sensation I have a prediction right. trust it trust your gut listeners if you think this new nice. co-founder isn't actually the right one but you feel like you might need them. Trust your gut. Trust your gut. Ask your body. What do you think about the situation? And trust it. That's my yeah. that's my takeaway advice for that. Yeah. Also, I I actually think your gut gets a lot of data. It's like the second biggest mass of neurons, isn't it, in your entire system? So it probably is data that just hasn't. Yeah. It's, it's just not. It, but it's just telling you. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'll bear that in mind. Thank you. Olivia, this has been so much fun. We have two last questions real quick to ask you that our listeners really love. The first one is we also have aspiring femtech entrepreneurs. So what is an area in women's health and wellness that you think still needs innovating? Ooh, I really, I really like this question. Um, so I was stepping back from sort of consumer packaged goods here because I, I think I've sort of tunneled down into that. But I really want to see innovations using data from femtech companies into sort of practical impacts. So from healthcare to insurance to cosmetics to all of these things. And so there are so many fantastic, so within fertility, you've got like natural cycles, you've got Juno, you've got LV, and all of these are creating products out of it. I think data, and there's so much information we can glean from it, but seeing the practical implications and not just what we would classically call for, well, well, I can't even speak, <laughs> but we would classically, you know, describe as femtech, so like women's health, but even like bringing, like the impacting car seat design. So there's better safety insurance, bringing down premiums on certain cancers that affect, you know, half of the population, things that are basically so integrated in, into our sort of everyday life. I'd love to sort of see that uh, sort of thing. And with more and more startups within femtech, I, and I think we, you know, we briefly mentioned this earlier about even though it's femtech focus, you know, you have audience listeners who of all different genders and all different backgrounds and diversity is the key to innovation, I think. And 100%. I don't want us to be, you know, say making the same mistakes as previous historical companies and using the same infrastructure and using that same culture and all of that. We need to yeah. challenge what there is out there and sort of 
think, you know, in a way, I think it's good if you don't have, you know, the pre-MBA or whatever, because you don't have any sort of misconceptions and assumptions that have been put into you. Yeah. You know, people, why? Maybe that's just what I tell myself. I said, I don't know. How else are you supposed to do? I remember my first year, my first company, all of our financials were in this Excel sheet because I'm a scientist. I'm a master Excel sheet. I had four colors. Then we finally got funded enough that I could hire an accountant. And they were like, where's your QuickBooks? And I was like, I don't know what that is. I have this Excel sheet. And they're like, damn, like, it's really good. But also, like, why did you do this? And I'm like, I don't know, you know? But I'll tell you what, Olivia, I knew where every penny went. I knew where every freaking penny went. Because there are founders with MBAs who are like, oh, I need QuickBooks. And they have no idea where every penny of their investments are going. Because, you know, they're outsourcing it because they learned about CPAs. Whereas me, I was like, oh, like personal budgeting is like my only reference for finance. <laughs> so I'm going to make yeah. a colored Excel sheet. But I knew where everything went, right? So um, my last question for you is what do you think the femtech industry as a whole needs the most right now in order to be successful? Ooh, so... This, I think, develops from sort of my answer to the previous question is, I think, integration of femtech into the wider ecosystem. Um, I think on the basic level, we've got, even at conferences and events, um, that I think femtech is often either a separate event or a separate section within it. And rather than having it sort of fully integrated within, like, for example, IoT, why can't we have our natural cycles as that? part of that sort of, you know, internet of things that we have for healthcare and sort of bring it under the wider umbrella of things because I think that also stops us from that sort of isolation of this is the femtech company rather than this is a tech company. I think there's there's a couple of steps, I think, to get from this point because I do recognise the benefits of highlighting femtech, especially when it is an area that has been previously under-innovated in and under-invested in. So, I do. I think it is a sort of balancing up. But now that we've sort of got this wave going, and there's, I, I'm, I'm always going to be a never-ending optimist around this industry because obviously it's what I'm doing. Um, so I think that you know this is the state of affairs that will you know work itself into the status quo. So now we need to make it normal and think about other ways of bringing in and challenging current systems and using this as integrating diversity into the natural sort of checking systems that we go forward in if i do my job right femtech focus will go out of business right because like that's the goal is like to make this health tech yeah <laughs> that's the goal yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so uh yeah i hear you and i love it i love it yeah. olivia you are amazing thank you so much for your time today it's been so fun chatting with you thank you so much Brittany, and i really enjoyed my time thank you everyone Thank you for listening to my interview with Dr. Olivia Ahn, CEO and co-founder of Planera. As per usual, listeners, I learned a lot during the interview. How many of you thought tampons were flushable? I definitely did and flushed many in my lifetime, so I'm glad I learned about that. I really enjoyed our conversation about the double standards for pads among different genders, material engineering and femtech, and maintaining an eco-conscious responsibility in the fem care space. It was a ton of fun. 
Already Fem fans, if you want to stay connected with Femtech Focus, then join our virtual community and subscribe to our newsletter at femtechfocus.org. In our virtual community, you can become a Fem Pro member for only $10 a month and get access to our library of recorded Femtech content and free tickets to our bi-weekly Femtech Fundamentals webinars. These are workshops that help founders build, launch, and succeed. We also have our Monday night listening parties, a new Femtech book club, and weekly office hours on Clubhouse. There's a lot going on, so definitely become a member at femtechfocus.org so you can stay up to date. While there, please consider setting up a recurring donation to Femtech Focus, which is a 501c3 nonprofit and relies on your donations to operate. Okay, Fem fans, until next time, keep innovating because improving women's health and wellness improves everyone's health and wellness.